0: What does it really mean to push back? Over the course of six seasons on our humble little podcast, we've learned that pushing back takes many forms. Sometimes it's small, a challenging conversation with friends and family to persuade them things need to change, or a piece of art that imagines what could be. Sometimes pushing back is big, political action and protest in the face of injustice that makes headlines. And sometimes... It starts with trying to make your job a little safer and leads you to take on one of the world's largest corporations and be named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Such is the story of Chris Smalls, a New Jersey native who was wrongfully fired from Amazon after he staged a walkout in protest of the lack of proper COVID-19 safety protocols. When Amazon chose to attack Smalls' intelligence rather than address his concerns for the health and safety of Amazon employees, Chris brought the fight right back to their door, eventually establishing the Amazon labor union, of which he is now president. You can see more about Chris's fight to create the Amazon labor union in Frederick's latest film, Breaking Social. But first, let's listen to his conversation with Frederick and Leilani as they discuss corporate responsibility, the true meaning of essential worker, and what it feels like to take on a man who is making $13
1: billion a day.
2: My name is Frederick gerton and I'm the filmmaker.
1: And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm The Advocate.
2: And this is Pushback Talks, and is it, Leilani, it's season seven? Season seven, episode two, I believe. Episode two, season seven. I don't know, we don't, I don't really count our episodes. Some podcasts no. really count everything, but we are not good at counting. We just keep doing stuff. And this podcast started in the midst of the pandemic, uh, so we could keep... Talking about important stuff. And the title, Push Back Talks, indicates that we like to push back because there's a lot of things. Leilani, you're out all the day pushing back uh, in in the world of housing, but you're also very engaged in, in Palestine. So I know you're suffering big time these days. It's stressful.
1: Big suffering, but uh, obviously... My suffering is minuscule compared to those living in Israel and Palestine, so I have to get my perspective, but uh, no, it's devastating what's happening, and I'm following what's happening in Gaza in particular right now, very devastating, Uh, considered a war crime to transfer a, a population, and that's what's being asked of the Palestinians right now. Today, as we speak, that they that they move to the south and tr- forcible transfer, as I said, is is uh, contrary to the laws that uh, apply in situations of occupation. So devastating and awful and
2: yes. And Leilani, you are an advocate. You are a lawyer, so you know what you're talking about. That's That's the thing.
1: I know a thing or two.
2: <laughs> but today we're going to push back with a very special guest and that's a man who is featured in my film, Breaking Social. And he's also a man whose whole life changed during the pandemic. Welcome to Pushback Talks, uh, Chris Malls, president of Amazon Labor Union.
3: Is that my cue to go?
1: Yeah, go. Come on in.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Glad to be here and, and have this conversation. Very much necessary in the times that we're in right now. Yeah. Backstory: We met in
2: Stockholm last week, <laughs> where we were showing this, my, my film Breaking Social in the Swedish Parliament, and you were there to speak in the Parliament. And now you're in Berlin, and this morning you you were you spoke in the in the Bundestag. You're you're you're
3: meeting a lot of politicians, a lot of people with ties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's been quite a journey, and um, actually, the MP that I met, I actually met her in Canada. So. I I guess there's really strong connection between uh Canada and European parliaments but I'm happy that I'm been able to tour as much as I have been. Yeah. So Chris, you
2: are now on the list of the by Time magazine the 100 most influential Americans in, you know, and I mean you're really you're up with an, an extreme recognition but still you got, you got your first passport recently. You're 35. Uh, Three years ago, you worked at Amazon out of JFK. And then the pandemic came. Can you tell us how it all started? I mean, those days during the pandemic, how was it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 2020 is very scary times for uh, everybody, pretty much. And uh, as you mentioned, working at Amazon for uh, five years, being a supervisor for four and a half, um, you know, working with my colleagues and the people around me for 40, 50 hours a week. I consider them my extended family. And, you know, during the pandemic, we expected this trillion-dollar company, Amazon, to take care of us as we were deemed essential workers. And uh, when I tried to go through the proper channels, going to HR, going to upper management to get some type of answer... When I seen on the news, as everybody else, this virus, deadly virus at the time, sweeping the nation, Um, I was trying to be proactive. And unfortunately, I was met with, you know, rebuttal and misinformation. And I also tried to be silenced by being told not to tell anybody in my building or in my department, at least, that there were already positive cases in our warehouse. So from there, um, I took a stance back in March of 2020, and uh, it cost me my job. I let a walk out over these conditions uh, after going back and forth with management for a week and them deciding to put me on, which nobody's seen at the time, a a quarantine policy that me, even as a supervisor, hadn't even had a chance to read. Um, I knew they were trying to stop me from, you know, telling the truth. So I became uh, what we know as a whistleblower, and uh, that changed my life forever. Two hours after that walkout, um, I was terminated, probably still to this day the only Amazon worker to be terminated over the phone. <laughs> and and from that moment, uh, you know, my life changed forever. So Leilani, this is the story,
2: uh, you know, the Amazon workers were essential workers. So mm-hmm. I mean, you, Chris, you you told me that when you were driving to work, you had a paper saying that you were an essential worker. So you could actually, you were allowed to be out there. And the highways were empty.
1: Well, and we, we all remember, those of us who were stuck at home, I was actually in quarantine for a couple of weeks right at the beginning of the pandemic as I'd been traveling. And Amazon was a lifeline in lots of ways. I mean, you were absolutely essential workers. I'm I'm interested to know what conditions were you working in and what were you demanding? Like you said, you expected Amazon to protect you, right, in the midst of this virus. So what were the actual conditions and then what was it that you were asking of them
3: yeah well uh you know i kind of disagree a little bit on saying that we're essential exactly i was also going there yeah that that was given to us you know that was a a title given to us we didn't ask for it you know when i when i'm talking about essential workers i'm telling you right now as an amazon worker if somebody passed out on the floor i'm calling 911 I don't know CPR. I don't know, you know, how to resuscitate people. I, I can try to do the best to save a life, but uh, when, when we're talking about essential workers, what we were delivering was not essential at all. You know, people were ordering cosmetics, hmm. sex toys, books, you know, stuff that we can go to the store and pick up. And that's all fine. You know, that's what Amazon is uh, was meant to do, you know, provide these these items that people, at a, at a luxury, is what I say, a luxury for you to hit one click buy and then you have this this item that you can walk across the street to a store to get.
2: Yeah. And I, and I guess also, Leilani, that, I mean, some things are really important to get sent out to people.
1: So that people could work from home and kids could go to school. I mean, that's what I was thinking, desks, chairs.
2: Yeah. But at the same time, um, maybe you could have cut down Amazon work to 30%, you know, Sure. <laughs> and and then the company could have sent home people who were sick with a paid sick leave. What are were any paid sick leave for people who, who caught the, the COVID?
3: Right. Well, well that's the thing. When, when we're talking about essential workers, the government didn't do a good job in defining who it was. And, you know, I mentioned in many of my talks is my job description said, to have a GED or a high school diploma and lift 50 pounds. It did not say to work during a deadly pandemic and uh, to be called an essential worker. To be compared to the closest thing to the Red Cross, I just think that's inaccurate.
1: Right.
3: You know, once again, a fulfillment center for clarity, we don't we don't deliver freight. We don't deliver furniture. Uh, we deliver small items like a toothbrush. We're putting people's lives at risk for, for things that, it's just unnecessary, and it's not just one person' life. We're talking multiple people, and and these people are, you know, behind the scenes is what people don't see. They don't see these warehouses. They don't see the working conditions. They don't even see how the package end up at their doorstep. They have no idea. So, you know, once again, it, being an essential worker to me is those are doctors and nurses and first responders. Those are definitely essential workers, but Amazon mm-hmm. workers. I'm not so sure about that. I just think mm-hmm. that, of course, we provide certain things that people need, but they can get it elsewhere. And, and you know, the, the, the problem is when you're talking about capitalism, uh, Amazon profited the most during the pandemic for that specific reason. There was not too many options out there. And, and the government had a lot to do with it. They know who they lobby for. And it's not for the working class people.
1: That's interesting, actually. I, can I just ask about that? Well, I don't know how it all worked in the U.S. and what got declared essential and not, because it's different than in Canada. But did Amazon sort of lobby or have to lobby to have you designated as essential workers? Or could they just do that without any sort of government sanction?
3: Well, that's the problem. They didn't. The government didn't know what the hell to do during the pandemic. You know, it's as clear as day. They didn't. They had no plan, no real plan. In the state of New York, I can speak on that, we, you know, we had Governor Cuomo. And you all remember how right. much they were amplifying Governor Cuomo. They thought he was like the savior to COVID.
1: Yeah, I remember.
3: And if you look at his track record, it's absolutely pro-corporate, pro-billionaire right. all the way. Right. So it just says a lot right there. Of course he's going to keep the billionaires happy because, you know, those are his constituents that he he caters to. So for us going to work, uh, he didn't say anything about us, you know, crying out loud. He didn't support my uprising. It was the local state politicians, the mayor. Um, you know, he said some things when I was fired at the time, Bill de Blasio. And uh, the Attorney General, Latisha James, she picked up my case. That's the same Attorney General who's suing Trump right now. You know, but besides that, uh, even in Canada, you know, the same struggles. You know, there's been plenty of warehouses in Canada that had the same working conditions. And I know I remember seeing those stories, talking to some of those workers during the time, they were going to do the same thing. I remember, but yeah, I actually did a better job. Uh, I think your mayor or some of the mayors, they put Amazon on notice. And I believe they did close some of them down and pay those workers. And, and that's what should have been done, especially when in New York City, when it became the epicenter of the world. So Chris, you got fired and then
2: you started to put spotlight on Jeff Bezos at that time the the richest man on the planet now he's only number 3 <laughs> oh only <laughs> number 3 oh poor boy poor boy but then you you started to to travel his his homes and to show people how he lives i mean leilani and i we've been talking a lot about how
3: the super rich park their money in homes but tell us about your tour well actually the spotlight he he created for himself really so Jeff Bezos, who was making $13 billion a day, $9 million an hour, $5,000 a second during the pandemic, decided after they fired me that he was going to sign off on the Samir campaign, um, calling me not smart or articulate. Also, ironically, he said to make me the face of the whole unionizing efforts, which I had no plan on. Uh, unionizing at the time, and they rather focused the attention on me than discrediting my my uh, story than answering questions about health and safety. So when that leaked out to the media, of course, that upsetted me. And, you know, that's a stigma in the Black community, being a Black man, saying that we're not smart enough to even talk about these things. That infuriated me to create my uh, nonprofit TCOEW, the Congress of Essential Workers. This is a year before our union. With the nonprofit, our mission was to bring together all essential workers in all different industries and bring them to the doorsteps of Jeff Bezos' penthouses and mansions. Starting in New York City at his $140 million penthouse, He just keeps buying floors every year. Then we went to D.C., His mansion now is actually a museum. Then we went out to Beverly Hills, a $165 million mansion, the biggest buy in California history, which is now owned by Jay-Z and Beyonce, more billionaires. So billionaires helping billionaires. Uh, I think he just sold it last year to them. So to show workers this is how your CEO is living compared to how we are being subjected to the exploitation uh, was very powerful to see Amazon workers, and not just Amazon workers. We had people in different movements, like from the environmental movement to Black Lives Matter to uh, Extinction Rebellion. All these different movements and and people showing up was very powerful. And and that's what led to uh, the direction of let's finally do something that's going to protect workers and create a union for Amazon workers. It's kind of ironic, Leilani. Uh, You also read the story
2: about how how Beesis decided to say that, that Chris is not smart enough, so we can we can put him out as a figurehead. <laughs> what a fucking mistake. It's it's really I really like that. I mean, that they think they are so smart, they think they know everything, and then they don't know anything, basically. I mean, it's they don't understand reality because they are so they're so far away.
1: Yeah, well, their racism and whatever elitism sh- you know shot them in their foot their own foot
2: yeah. which
1: is fantastic <laughs> they didn't know who they were who they were going up against and and i love that i mean it's the it is certainly a kind of david and goliath type situation for sure and amazing that they underestimated you and the people behind you it wasn't just you chris smalls you were tapping into the experiences of thousands of workers and they underestimated probably the strength of that, right? I think we live in a time where we all know, those of us who are trying to push back, that there's the strength comes from people, that we will be able to push back if we can mobilized. I think the elites are way far away from that. I think they've forgotten the strength of people.
3: They're not cut from the same cloth. You know, Jeff Bezos ain't never uh, had to struggle in his entire life. And they're they're, they're disconnected. You know, they, they don't know what it is to struggle. And they probably don't even know what it is to be told no, which is even more of an issue. You know, as I always say before, you know, the amount of money didn't matter that they spent on trying to stop us. You can't measure people power. And and that's what they don't understand, you're right.
1: I love the interplay between the individual and the system that you seem, putting front and center Bezos, his lifestyle, what it means to be a billionaire, but then trying to change the system. I think it's nice to be able to recognize both, that they are interconnected, that those billionaires are creating a system that works for them and that we have to change the system. And keep our eye on those guys, <laughs> something like
3: that they can they can have a one way ticket to space <laughs> <laughs> indeed yeah and and you know in our
2: podcast, but also in the film, we have Peter s Goodman, the New York Times Global economic correspondent, and he also talked to you during the pandemic, but he talks about the cosmic lie so that these billionaires. They actually believe that they are the saviors of the planet. They they are selling that story so hard, so they actually buy into it. They think they are so smart, and then the rest of us are kind of stupid, you know, and 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 they totally underestimate any of uh, all of us. I mean, in some ways, so, and especially the the workers. And uh, I mean, if, if you go back in history, I mean, workers have always, a lot of amazing people are coming from the working class and has been really made amazing change. And not everybody is thinking only about themselves, you know, like like he's doing. So it's, it's interesting to see, because this cosmic lie that he is saving the planet, I mean, that also goes for Elon Musk or many of the other guys. I think your. are your your pushing back, your your organizing has actually costed him a lot of his prestige. People don't really admire him in the same way anymore. Uh, He's he's losing a little bit of his, his glossiness, you know, people see them now as who they are, I think. And that's a big cost for them. You're actually Costing their image, you know, image damage, which is kind of cool.
3: I mean, well, I said it before. I, I'm, I'm living rent free in Jeff Bezos' head, which is, <laughs> which is enough for me, because when you think about it, you know, and he wrote his little book. If you read his book, it really enlightens you on how he how billionaires think. He wakes up and he claims that he only has three thoughts a day. And his work day is pretty much over by like 12 o'clock. You know, he makes these three thoughts, he gives it to his team, and then he's done for the day. That's how he has his this life, lifestyle, right? But now I just know that's untrue, you know. One of those three thoughts is 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 myself. And if it's not myself, it's about what's going on with these unions with Amazon, and that's satisfaction for me. You know, to be on the minds of these billionaires, letting them know that, you know, we're not going to stop, the organizing is only going to continue, we're only going to expand, you know, that's a victory for, for working-class people. We do have a long way to go, but as you mentioned, exposing the ugliness of of these billionaires is hand-in-hand, is hand. it's imperative to what we have to do. It is interesting
2: that the, these billionaires... Hate unions. I mean, from I'm coming from Sweden, and in Sweden, to be to I mean almost all companies accept a union. They think it's actually good to have a counterpart to talk to. But to form a union in the US is really difficult. You need to win an election. Fifty percent plus one has to vote to form a union. And Leilani, in a workplace like Amazon, where there is a constant flow of worker coming in and out it's extremely difficult
3: but you won tell me more about your win winning the vote yeah i mean it, it's as you mentioned it seemed impossible amazon's been around for 29 years now and 28 of them they were kicking unions butts you wouldn't even hear about a campaign you know they were crushing them uh, once again we knew the way we had to organize had to be completely unprecedented on un, you know something that's never been done before and to create a union is one thing but you know compared to joining the union which is easy creating a union i wouldn't even wish that on my worst enemy right now because uh <laughs> if they would have told me that it would be this difficult and still be this difficult i probably would have thought otherwise not affiliation but i would have just i don't know who knows but it, it's it's really difficult as you mentioned you have to have 30% to even file for an election as you mentioned going up against amazon their turnover rate is 150% meaning they're firing they're firing 2-3% a week i was losing people every single day i would sign up one person and lose that same person the next day um it was amazing to see like wow we're not battling We're up against the clock. We're up against their turnover rate. Once you get to 30%, now you have to make up the extra 20, and you have to add plus one, because if you have 50%, guess what? You lost. We were fortunate enough to do that and continue building relationships and earning the trust of the workers while we filed in a short amount of time. And, of course, me being an actual Amazon worker, it helped. Uh, The conversations were easy. The educational piece to our campaign was was easy to have these conversations about what we were trying to build. And we beat Amazon fair and square, whatever that means. You know, fair and square, not really on our side, but we followed all the rules and beat them by over, over 5%, over 500 plus votes. There's no dispute in that. The the people wanted a union and they got one.
1: Amazing. It's so inspiring. I just have to weigh in with that, having not had the opportunity to speak with you before, Chris, unlike Frederick. So I just want to ask, this is maybe a pedestrian question, but I'm just trying to visualize this a little bit. You know, I've seen movies about union organizing I'm pretty old, so they, they were really popular in the 70s and 80s, those movies. So, like, are you literally standing outside of an Amazon warehouse and walking up to people as they leave and come to work?
3: Yeah, I had an occupation right outside of the same building that fired me, uh, right at the public bus stop for wow. over 300 days. Wow. Days, night, winter, summer, hot, cold, rain, shine. You saw me outside. I had a little tent, had a little bonfire. Had a couple tables, some chairs, a nice little music speaker. You know, that's all we really could afford. You know, we were raising money through GoFundMe. We had no support, no resources, no real political support, no real union support. It was just a bunch of individuals that came together. And most of them, uh, actually all of my organizers worked at Amazon. So most of the time I was outside alone and for hours, for 10, 12 hours, I think one time I stayed outside for, like, 36 hours before I even went home to, like, shower and come right back. And that was the life for 300-plus days. It was rinse and repeat, outside the building, talking to as many people as, you know, that came to and from work every day.
1: Incredible. I, I ask that because I, I work with a lot of people who are trying to form informal tenants unions, you know, people living in apartment buildings, trying to fight big financial investors in their buildings. And I think they'll draw real inspiration to know that what they're doing, because they're doing the same thing, right? They're, they are trying to reach out to tenants day in and day out, losing tenants all the time because they're being evicted, et cetera. So I think they'll draw real inspiration from your story. I just wanted you to fill that out for them. So thanks so much,
2: Chris. Absolutely. Breaking Social, you've seen the film where you're featured also. It's very much about people who take this step where they say, fuck it, now I I had enough, now I have to do something. You know, this kind of leap from being... uh, you know, maybe angry and frustrated, but not doing anything till to, to do something. It's a big step and you took it. Can you Can you remember what made you take it? I mean, have you always had that in you or was it like something that was growing in you?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I watched my mom, single black mom as a kid, get up every day, work one or two jobs and go to school just to provide for me and my brother, me being the oldest in the household, you know, I had a lot of responsibilities at a younger age. So the fight has always been in me. I had to grow up a little faster and I had to make decisions. Most kids probably don't have to, especially when, you you know, in a single parent home. And when it came to, you know, speaking my truth and representing who I am, I was this way when I walked into Amazon in 2015. Exactly what you see now is who I was you know, 10, 20 years ago, for me, it it was the life or death situation. We're talking about the pandemic. I lost everything. I hit rock bottom. You know, Amazon basically just said, F you, you know, die. And that's the message I took from them when they fired me was they didn't care about all the good work that I've done for them, for the company. They really, as you mentioned, they didn't know who I was and how valuable I was. I trained thousands of their employees hundreds of their upper management i opened up three warehouses not just one in the tri-state area by the way new york new jersey and connecticut this is probably their most profitable region for amazon and their entire network so for me to, to be such an asset to the company and for them to disregard me uh the way they did that's what told me okay i'm playing for a different team now you know i i, I tried to play for amazon i tried to play nice I tried to be the model employee. I tried to get promoted up. They they disrespected me with that. The icing on the cake was firing me during the pandemic, making me pretty much hit rock bottom again. And during quarantine, it's the worst thing you could have possibly imagined. You know, depression, not knowing how you're going to support yourself financially. Honestly, the unemployment system was so backed up, I didn't know when I was going to receive another paycheck. So... Uh, All these things are going on, and my name, my face is everywhere, all over the media, especially during quarantine. I would turn on the media every day. They're talking about me and what I've done with the walkout, and, and then it got worse when the leak came out, when the memo came out. So I had to embrace it. It was no turning around. There was no turning back. I had to embrace the moment, and I had the decision to make. And I decided that I'm just going to continue advocating and here we are three years later. <laughs> Chris, I
2: have to, one thing, when, cause we were hanging out last week in Stockholm. You are a young union leader. You really say also in the films that you represent a generation. So you, in some ways, you're also trying to have a different style. I remember when we were walking around the Swedish parliament, people got like, (laughs) they got totally starstruck. (laughs) And let's say you have a colorful appearance. And I mean, you you design your own t-shirts. And I mean, you have an idea behind what your appearance. I'm totally certain about that.
3: Yeah, well, I want to represent the community that I come from and you know, me, the artist in me, being a, a former rapper, fashion is is a very big part of my life. I love fashion. And I always, not for nothing, I just love being different. You know, I think that's a part of leadership as well, is, you know, gravitating attention. And for whatever reason, my, my fashion has done that. Even in the movement, the labor movement is been rejuvenated in several different ways. And yeah, it's it's so weird because this is just me being me. And for everybody else, it's new. It's new to them when they see a union president dressed like this. And that's another stigma that I'm trying to break down, is that we don't have to be in suit and tie and we don't have to be an older white male or Caucasian woman. We can be exactly who we are. We can look how we want to look. We can dress how we want to dress but still deliver powerful messages. And I said that day I walked into the White House as well, you know, I'm coming as is or not at all. I love it. (laughs) Tell us what you, tell us what you were,
2: the the letters of your, of your, your outfit when you enter into the Oval Room. Oh, eat the rich. (laughs) Eat the rich.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I have to say, a little known fact, I, I did my legal training at a union-side labour law firm in Canada. And I tell you, there were no union folks like you, Chris Smalls. <laughs> they were all those older white guys. Not bad guys, right? These are union guys. But nice to see that things are evolving as they should, right? And I think you, you, your look the way you speak, your energy must resonate with so many workers. I can I can only imagine.
3: Yeah, yeah. Definitely uh the younger generation for sure. Yeah. It's even people don't want to have the conversation, but it's like, you know, let's be honest. The the labor movement representation of people of color is, is not where it needs to be as well. Exactly. And when you're talking about union presidents, uh people of color, it's very small. Uh, we're still minority. So uh there's a lot of work to be done uh even on our side. We had to we had to do better and we have to put people from the rank and file, people from the bottom up in, in these positions so that they can break down these stigmas. Yeah.
2: It's it's um I think you do this really well. And and we were around in the Swedish parliament. You you met a lot of, of union people and MPs. A lot of young people, a lot of also immigrants
3: uh, or kids of immigrants in Sweden. What, what was your impression? Oh, I was super impressed. I actually was just texting um, uh, Elsa last night. You know, um, just just inspired because uh, to see such young adults in the parliament. You know, we we praise we praise AOC and the Squad in America, and when I come over here you know, to Europe or to Canada, and I'm seeing these young politicians that are way younger, talk about a whole decade younger than her. It really blows my mind. And I'm like, wow, I wish I can see that at home. And it really enlightened me on how, really how divided we are back at home in, in, in the States. You know, we, we, we try to look for hope in certain individuals. And then when they sell us out, we look for hope in somebody else. Then they sell us out, and it's like a repeated pattern. But I don't want to see that anymore. I want to see a system where there's a third-party option, there's a socialist party, there's a labor party, there's another option that is sustainable, and it's led by a generation, you know, that's representing the times that we live in. And that's not the case right now. You know, we have a two-party system. We got a bunch of dinosaurs. I call them dinosaurs. That's in power and they're not willing to pass the torch. They're going to stay there until the wheels fall off or until their death, and that's just not that's not right. That's not how it should be. No, I think the,
2: the this the whole idea of our podcast is very much about connecting inspirational stories from people fighting back. We've been talking with people in different parts of Africa and in, the, in the South America and the Caribbean and Europe and in North America. We we try to. To find people who fight back. And your story is one of those inspirational stories. You inspire workers around the world, but you also get the inspiration back. You also bring something back to, to the US. And I think this is see you're, you're now traveling, you've been to France, you've been to the UK, you've been to Canada, now Sweden, now you're in Germany. So what are you what are your what are you looking for when you when you go out and to these travels? not with your first your first
3: ever passport <laughs> I know I know my passport is is, is being stamped up and um <laughs> yeah I guess it's just for one I'm catching up on the the 30 years I didn't travel outside and for two um I'm I'm a kid right now all over again soaking up as much as I can I'm learning about the different laws I'm learning about the different histories in these countries, and when it pertains to labor, the struggles, and really trying to figure out how to bring some of these laws to America at the same time, build the international solidarity that is much needed for this type of fight. So it's a it's it's a combination of things, walking and chewing bubble gum at the same time. And you know, my journey is is really just the beginning. You know, this this is still an infancy stage, even though. You know, my unions, uh, we won our election over a year ago. We still don't have a contract. The company still doesn't recognize us, us, us as a official union. And the struggles in other countries, even the ones that do have unions with Amazon, uh, they're still going through the same the same type of fight, just different when it comes to the laws. And I figured out that Amazon and we're figuring that out together that Amazon is exploiting us in different ways. You you mentioned Elsa Alm from the Swedish labor unions. She's
2: a very young union organizer and they were really interested in how do we organize the gig workers? The the people who work for the for the apps, you know? And because that's a, a, a new kind of working class that are, I mean you mentioned that the the delivery people at Amazon. The people who drive around Amazon delivery vans, they are all gig workers. They don't they are not employed by Amazon. They are not, not even allowed to unionize. But what are your advice to to the unions who try to organize the gig workers around the world?
3: Right. Well number one thing, they have to be employees. You know, being called independent contractors, that strips them from a lot of rights right there by itself. The company is not liable for even health insurance may not be liable for damage to their vehicles or their bikes or their scooters or whatever. The company is not at fault for a lot of different things when they're deemed as independent contractors. So for one, if you put on an Amazon vest and you drive an Amazon truck, you should be an Amazon employee. There's no way you're telling me that somebody else is at fault for whatever the case, and that goes for that goes for Uber and whatever they, they are called, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, all these different delivery ser- uh, services. They're all deemed independent contractors, and that's just not the right status of employment. So there's a case right now, I believe, in Canada. The one there's only one employee for Uber in Canada right now. This guy, uh, I believe, he was at a conference. I met. Uh, I met him once. I can't remember his name right now. Forgive me, but if you look it up, he's in court right now trying to fight for his employment status. But if he wins, which I believe he is winning, that's going to change the scope of Uber drivers in Canada, the entire country. They, they all should be employees now. Once they have the employee status, then it, it makes it easier to organize and unionize. Same thing in Sweden or wherever else where you know you have these companies like Amazon that use these third party options we have to stop that we have to make sure that these laws don't allow these corporations to you know exploit workers through a third party i mean it's it's leilani it's about legislation you know it's
2: like you know it's about the parliaments
1: it is and it's about under you know undoing part of the cosmic lie cuz the lie that's been told to so many workers around the world is the freedom of being a gig worker, the freedom of, you know, not being an employee. And that freedom really means low wages, no protections, you know, shitty work circumstances, et cetera. So the undoing, we need to undo that narrative, right? And, and return to a narrative of job security, pensions, decent wages, right? Decent sick, conditions. Paid sick and, leave and
2: during a pandemic.
1: Paid, paid sick leave, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that really comes through, in Chris, as you're speaking to me, and especially when you told your story from, you know, being the child of a single mom, um, is, you know, it's a return to human value. Like, humans need to be valued for what they're giving society. As a worker at Amazon, you were giving back to society, and you weren't being treated accordingly. And I feel like we're at a time right now where the value of human beings is, is really second to the value of profits and billionaire desires and all of that. And you're really bringing that human to me. And, and you caught me in a moment with all that's going on in the world right now of, of really examining like who is valued in this world and why. And for me, that's what you, what you bring to this, right? You're just bringing us back to the value of employees what they give to, to society. So,
3: yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, they deem us as essential workers, but if you look at the definition of essential, that means that we're a necessity and they need us. So if they need us, that means that they need to treat us and pay us as if they, they need us. So Exactly. Um, yeah, we, we we got a lot of work to do. business wouldn't be Bezos without
2: all the workers that... that... Day by day, <laughs> work for him, Chris. I'm really, really happy that you could make a little slot for us in your busy program, and I'm really happy for our friendship. And I'm I re- wish you all the best, and let's keep let's keep talking and let's keep pushing back.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You already know you're my guy, man. And um, anything I can do to amplify the film, anything. That I can do to amplify the struggles. I'm all for it. You already know.
2: Yeah, the film will have its German premiere uh, the 26th of October on on theaters around Germany. I will be in Berlin for the pre uh, screening in the 22nd of October, and then I will tour five German cities to to show your face on the big screen. Amazing! <laughs> Love to see it. Love to see it. Keep it going. I will. Thank you, Lelani. Thank you again for another episode of Pushback Talks, and uh, now you you can walk out in the Ottawa River. (laughs) I I heard that it's supposed to snow quite soon next week or something. I'm happy that I'm going to Mexico tomorrow.
1: (laughs) I am not listening to that snow. No snow, but I do. I will take a
3: nice
1: Ottawa's cool. Oh my gosh. Maybe if Chris Smalls visits Ottawa, it's a little cooler. I did already.
3: <laughs> I was there. I was in Ottawa. Next time. Next time. I'll, oh, yeah. Next time, I'll I'll make sure I, you know, connect with you over there for sure. Absolutely. But I was there. I had a good time there, yeah. surprisingly.
1: Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, surprisingly. <laughs> Ottawa's cool when Chris Small visits.
3: <laughs> they tried to take me to the parliament. And I, and I was like, nah. I, <laughs> I, I said no to that one, but... Next time. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> okay, thank you, friends.
2: And talk soon again. Leilani, new, new episodes coming up.
1: We'll talk again, Frederick, and super nice to meet you, Chris. Likewise.
2: Take Chris. care. Thanks, bye.
1: Pushback Talks is
0: produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Follow us on social media at Make Underscore The Shift and Push Underscore The Film, or check out our websites MakeTheShift.org, PushTheFilm.com, or BreakingSocialFilm.com.